Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in the scriptures to Luke chapter 2. Our passage this morning will be uh, verses 21 through 52, but we're going to start by reading just verse 21 through 40. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. Beloved saints, this is God's word. It is worthy and deserving of our undivided attention. Let us pay attention to the reading of it. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it, was, as it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it says in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own souls also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, And then, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer in night and day. And coming up, at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This sentence, the reading of God's word at this point. Let us ask that he would be with us as we look into his word and he would speak to us through it. Heavenly Father, eternal God, you have told us that all flesh is like the grass. It is a breath and then it is gone. In our hands we hold something that is eternal, something that was around long before we were and will be be around long after us. Your word, indeed, abides forever. And so we ask that you would give us uh, undivided attention as we attend to it, that you would give us receptivity to all that it has to say and that our beliefs, our understanding, and our expectations would all be brought into accord with your word. 
All of this we ask in the name of your Son, the Word made flesh. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it seems like we've been talking about wisdom a lot lately. Uh, Pastor Brian addressed it last week from James, comparing uh, the wisdom above, the wisdom in heaven, and contrasting it with earthly wisdom that is below. And now today, our passage tells us in verse 40 that, that Jesus was filled with wisdom. In verse 52, we'll see that it says he grew in wisdom. So it seems that our God wants us to meditate upon wisdom. To think about its benefits. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is precious. Proverbs 3 tells us it is more precious than gold and silver. That it grants peace to those who possess it. That it is a a tree of life to those who lay hold of it. Wisdom is that ability to judge things as as they really are, not as they appear to be. Uh, Wisdom is that ability to value what is lasting and permanent more than what is fleeting and temporary. And so wisdom prioritizes what is good over what is pleasurable. It grants those who possess it the ability to understand that some things are truly costly, but they are worth the price. It realizes that too much comfort might actually be the ruin of someone. And so the simple reality is we have a a love-hate relationship with wisdom. We all want it because we know it's necessary to weather the storms of life, to make sense out of our world and all that it throws at us. But we also know that wisdom calls us to accept that life is hard, that good is not always rewarded, and that we are not in control, and that our only hope for peace is to learn to surrender to the one who truly is in control. And that's hard. We don't want to do that. We know that that wisdom always comes through costly experience. But for those who possess it, those who know its treasures, wisdom is worth the price. And and so we have all these realities about wisdom and, and they have this conflict within our own hearts. We love it, we want it, but we despise it because of the cost and what it calls us to to accept. And that's really what we want to wrestle with today as we look at two episodes from early in Jesus' life, when he was an infant and when he was 12 years old. We want to see the pain and the heartache that Jesus was destined for and the confusion and the grief that these things caused to those who loved him. And then we want to see the restoration and the glory that had to follow, what made the pain worth it. And then finally, we want to ask how these various responses uh, within our passage to all that's going on reflect our own hearts and what the comfort of wisdom 
looks like and affords us. And so that's really what we want to look at today. If I could summarize everything in one sentence, it would be something like this. Wisdom gives comfort. It gives consolation to those who possess it, teaching them to recognize that the only way to eternal life is through death and resurrection. It gives comfort in the midst of struggles and trials because it tells us that it's through those trials that that a better life ultimately comes. And that's the true way of salvation. Uh, The first, I said there's two uh, episodes in Jesus' life. We've read one. We'll read the other in a few minutes. But the first one we've read is framed by by two prophetic messages. Uh, One by a, a man named Simeon and one by a widow named Anna. Uh, Simeon is a righteous, devout man whom we are told was awaiting the consolation of Israel. And, and the impression that we get from this passage is we're supposed to know what that is. And indeed, it's a reference uh, to Isaiah 40. Something that the prophet Isaiah told us. There he, he speaks these words, uh, Comfort, comfort my people. Uh, In the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, it's consolation. Consolation, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity, her sin is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. And, And by double there, It's not meant double punishment. It's meant double blessing in the place of her sins. This is the consolation, the comfort of Israel, because Israel's greatest problem were not the Gentile neighbors among whom she lived, the Philistines or the Hittites or the Egyptians, the Romans even. Like us, Israel's greatest problem was a guilty conscience a conscience that screamed at them daily that they were unworthy, that they were unclean, that they were unlovable, that they deserved to die, that in their sin and their rebellion they had become enemies of God and that they were no better than their Gentile neighbors. And so Simeon was longing for God to fulfill those words spoken to Isaiah, comfort, comfort. Your warfare is ended and your sins are forgiven. The consolation of Israel, this is what he's been waiting for. That day when when peace replaces strife, where, where forgiveness replaces shame, And where blessing replaces cursing. But Isaiah was just getting started in chapter 40s. Isaiah would go on and describe how all this would be achieved through this one whom he called the servant who would come and suffer. He would be the Lord's anointed. He He would be the Christ, the Messiah. That Israel's comfort would come through the Messiah who would suffer. And God had told Simeon that he would not die before he saw that servant come. And 
And as Mary and Joseph entered the temple with Jesus, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, he knew at that instant that that promise had been fulfilled. And he grabbed that baby up in his arms. And he blessed God because in this child, God's salvation had come to earth, both for for Jews and for Gentiles, for the guilty Hebrews and for their Gentile neighbors. Salvation had come. Anna's words are shorter than Simeon's, but they're no less poignant. She's there in the temple praying while Simeon holds Jesus, and, and she sees what's going on too. She understands, and, and she gives thanks, and she pr- and, pr- and prays. And she declares to all who had listened to her that the consolation, the redemption of Israel had come. And these two voices, Simeon and Anna, mark out just how important Jesus' arrival is. His coming brings the Lord's salvation. It it brings hope for sinners. It brings forgiveness for sins. In fact, that's what his name means. At the very beginning we read, on the eighth day he was circumcised and he was named Jesus, as the angel said he should. Uh, That name Jesus uh, is just the Greek, well, it's the English version of the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua, which just simply means Yahshua, Yahweh saves. Jesus is the coming of God's salvation. He is the Lord's redemption. His coming brings hope. It's joyous. It's exciting. Simeon and Anna are are exalting in praise, and yet in the midst of all of this, there's something hanging over our passage that's heavy, and it's death. Death is is poking into our passage in several places. Uh, First, we see in verses 22 and 23 with the sacrifice that has to be made for Jesus because we're told he's the firstborn. And this goes back to the exodus out of Egypt. Uh, The angel of death was, was coming through and God announced that he would strike down all the firstborn of, of man and beast in Egypt. And, and that would mean Israel too if it was not for a provision he made. That if they sacrificed a lamb instead, their firstborn would be spared. As that angel came through Egypt, death came with it. Death as punishment, it was not something new in the Bible. This goes back to the garden. God says, the day you eat, the day you break my commandments, you will die. The proper punishment for all rebellion is death. And, and, and the reality that if, the, if the, the Jews did not sacrifice a lamb, they too would die, was a reminder that they are no less sinful than their Egyptian oppressors. And as God spared their firstborn, He said, they are now mine. And so generation after generation, they were required to offer sacrifices for their firstborn. And so Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice for Jesus who has opened Mary's womb for their firstborn. 
And as Jesus opens her womb, as his life is celebrated, death is not far off. They're sacrificing animals. But death is also seen in his circumcision. Just a verse earlier, verse 21, at eight eight days old, according to the custom and commands of God, Jesus was circumcised. And circumcision is, is a picture itself of death and a reminder of what we all deserve. But it was also a reminder of God's promise to Abraham that one would come and die in our place so that all who believe in him would be spared his judgment and his curse. And so like the sacrifice for the firstborn, circumcision held out these two realities, the cost of sin, death, and the price of redemption, a substitute. And all of these pieces, these little elements in our passage are are meant to paint one picture. Jesus is the Lord's salvation. He is the consolation of Israel. And salvation can only come through death and sacrifice of a substitute. But who would that substitute be? Well, as an act of consecration, circumcision designated those who received it as belonging to the Lord, as his to do with, as he will. When you're consecrated and set apart unto the Lord, you're saying, my life is yours to do with as you will. And as Jesus is consecrated, as he's declared the consolation of Israel, as a sacrifice is offered on the the altar, as he's circumcised, and there's this deep sense of foreboding that something painful lies ahead, that he is being consecrated, that he is being set aside for death. And this explains what Simeon says to, to Mary in verses 34 and 35. He says, Behold, this child is appointed, this child is set aside for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign opposed. Well, that's odd. He's set aside for these great things, but also this opposing sign. Not only would Jesus be the salvation of many, but something would happen that seemed so completely contradictory to life and good news. That's what Isaiah also prophesied. We read it in our our declaration of pardon. He would be pierced for our transgressions. Our lives would come at the cost of his. Simeon warns Joseph and Mary that when a sword pierces him, their own souls would be pierced as well. The greatest pain a parent can experience is not their own pain, but the pain inflicted on their child. They would be pierced through as if by a sword when their son suffers and dies. Death hangs all over this passage. Sacrifice, circumcision, the promise of a conflicting sign and and a sword piercing. And then he says this, all of this will be so that the thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. I wonder if you noticed how many times in our passage secret thoughts are revealed. 
How many times we're told what's going on in people's hearts and minds? Verse 29, Simeon found peace. Verse 33, Joseph and Mary marveled. Verse 38, Anna was grateful. Verses 43 and 44, Joseph and Mary supposed one thing. Verse 47, all who heard were amazed. Verse 48, his parents were astonished and then were told they were also distressed. Verse 51, Mary treasured these things in her heart. Over and over and over in our passage, we're, we're told what's going on in the hearts and minds of people. A vast array of emotions. On one hand, joy and awe and peace. And on the other hand, sorrow and confusion and distress. And what's writing through all of these is the suffering of Jesus and our own personal pain. And we know that this isn't surprising because suffering and pain bring to the surface our emotions, our struggles. Death and suffering reveal the hidden things of the heart and and lead us to cry out for wisdom, how to make sense out of all of this. And so as we read this first section, when they go down to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice... There's this looming sense of death and pierced souls. And that's, that's meant to be hanging as we move on to the second episode, 12 years later, when, when Jesus is 12 years old. And so let's read that, verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old... They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Again, they've come to Jerusalem. Twelve years later, this time to celebrate the Passover. This was the custom in Israel according to God's law. Three times a year, the Israelites were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to celebrate feasts. Entire families would caravan down together, aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. They would all be together. They'd sing. They'd play. They'd interact. Cousins would go off. They'd be with this set of aunts and uncles and wander from this family to that. And so it was not uncommon to lose track of your kids. They were with someone. 
And on the way home, that's exactly what happened. And his parents didn't know that, that Jesus chose to stay in Jerusalem. It was the end of the first day of travel before they realized what had happened. And so they rushed back to Jerusalem to find him. No idea where he was. All they knew was they had lost their son. Any parent who's lost a child for three minutes knows the sheer panic and terror. How their souls must have been pierced with fear and dread. Think about how the prodigal son's father described those years of absence. My son was lost. Lost. It's exactly how they felt he's gone. But the prodigal's father went on and said, those years of loss were like years of death. He says, oh, is my son lost and is now found. He was dead and is now alive. Because when you don't know where those you love are, you don't know if they're alive. They've been taken from you. And so death continues to loom over our passage as Joseph and Mary rush back to Jerusalem and experience that first taste of the pain that lies ahead for them. For three long days, they search, panicked for their son, probably not sleeping. For three long days, they don't know if their son is alive or dead. And then on the third day, he's returned to them. They found him in the temple. How they must have felt like the prodigal's father at that moment. Our son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. How they must have celebrated like that father. Finally, finally in our passage, on the third day, death replaces life. Uh, uh, sorry, life replaces death. Joy replaces fear. Understanding replaces confusion. A reality that is underscored by what is going on when his parents find him. He's sitting in the temple, amazing and confounding the teachers of Israel at his knowledge and his understanding. Up to this point in the passage, everything has been filled with death and confusion, but here on the third day we find Jesus making sense out of life's mysteries. all those silent questions that come to the surface in the midst of suffering find their answers on the third day. And his mom asks, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. There's, there's nothing shocking about this question for parents. Which of us wouldn't start here? Where have you been what were you thinking? You gave us a heart attack. I'm so glad you're alive, and now I'm going to kill you. <laughs> we know it. But Jesus' response isn't one of contrition and sorrow. He simply asks, why were you looking for me? This is not the last time this question will be asked in Luke's Gospel. On another third day, when Jesus had again been lost, when all who knew and loved him were in great distress, 
On that Sunday morning, they came to the tomb where he had been laid to anoint him with spices. And when they arrived, they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. And two angels appeared to them and asked them a simple yet hauntingly familiar question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The echo is intentional. Luke's gospel opens with this question and it closes with this question. Jesus' parents thought he was lost, but he wasn't. He was right where he was supposed to be. So why were they looking for him like he was lost? Jesus went on and said, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Why are you looking for me? This is where I had to be. This was necessary. For Jesus, there was no other option. This is where he had to be. And this too anticipates the rebuke of the angels at the empty tomb. They asked two questions of those who came. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And after that, they said, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified on the third, and on the third day rise. Okay, it's not a question, it's a statement. But you hear the echo. Why are you looking for him? Wasn't this necessary? It's the same pattern Jesus says to his parents. The point is not to say that his death and separation from them wasn't hard, but to say it was expected there could be no other way. After all, he is the consolation of Israel He is the promised suffering servant. He was the one of whom Isaiah had said he would be struck for his people. He would bear their sins in their place. He would be the sacrificial lamb. It was necessary for him to die because he was consecrated unto death. But according to our passage, that can't be the end of the story because on the third day, sorrow must give way to joy. On the third day, confusion must give way to understanding. On the third day, death must give way to life. And this is what wisdom gives us the ability to understand. Beloved, when hard times come, we feel a lot like Joseph and Mary. We experience distress and confusion and fear. Perhaps you experience these emotions far more than you'd like to admit. And when you do, those secret thoughts of your heart are exposed. Life is hard and it's, it's seldom comfortable and it's easy to be confused, to be, to be angry, to complain. But like Jesus, you are not your own. Your baptism marks you out as belonging to the Lord. Beloved, your life is not your own. It is God's to do with as he sees fit. And he will allow you to endure hard times. And it is then that wisdom is needed because it's wisdom that gives you the ability to value what is lasting and permanent more than what is fleeting and temporary. It teaches you to prioritize what is good over what is pleasurable. 
It enables those who possess it to understand that some things are costly, but they are worth the price. Wisdom recognizes that too much comfort might actually be your ruin. Jesus was filled with wisdom, verse 40, grew in wisdom, verse uh, 51, and that he imparted wisdom, verse 47. This passage is written to teach us that the way to eternal comfort is not the easy road, that, that those who seek to save their lives will actually end up losing them, that those who lose their lives for Jesus' sake will actually find them that the only way to eternal life is through death and resurrection. Wisdom teaches us to be shocked by neither death nor resurrection. Wisdom teaches us that the resurrection follows death, that comfort follows pain. That's the consolation, that's the comfort of wisdom. If you belong to Jesus, these are words of life for you. And like Mary, you'll you'll treasure them up in your heart. You'll find comfort, not in your circumstances, but in belonging to the Lord and understanding his ways. Jesus didn't just possess and teach wisdom. He embodied it. And that means he experienced all of these realities, death and resurrection. He experienced them in the flesh And so Jesus did not just understand and teach these things, but he allowed death to consume him for three days that he might rise on the third. That reality is made visible for us this morning in the Lord's Supper. In the bread and the wine, we see the flesh and the blood of Jesus given in death on the cross. But we use bread and wine because we don't possess his physical body on this earth. Because it didn't stay in the grave. When they showed up with those spices, the grave was empty, and the angels rebuked them. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He has been raised, and he spent a few weeks with his disciples, and then his body was taken up into heaven. And so we we have to remember his body, not by visiting his grave, but with bread and wine, because our God is raised. Our Savior has ascended into heaven. These elements proclaim all we have heard in our passage and they assure us the wisdom of heaven, that that the only way to eternal life is through death and resurrection. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us without wisdom. You have not left us without consolation. You have not left us without redemption. That you have sent your Son into this world knowing that he would be lost to death but found on the third day. And you did this because it was necessary, because there was no other way to save us. And so we thank you. And we pray that you would teach us to see as you see. And in so doing, we would know your comfort we would experience the consolation that belongs to the wise, recognizing that the only way to enter into life is through death and resurrection. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.